0: Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner.
2: Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting.
1: And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever
3: you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a who-done-it for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. As a singer, guitarist, producer, and manager... Peter Asher has been at the center of some of the most important music and moments of the rock era. In 1964, he was just 19 when his London-based duo, Peter and Gordon, released its first single, A World Without Love. It reached number one on the charts on both sides of the Atlantic. That's quite a feat, but not that surprising when you learn that it was written by his sister's then-boyfriend, a young man by the name of Paul McCartney.
5: Birds sing out a tune And rain clouds hide the moon I'm okay, here I'll stay With my loneliness I don't care what they say I won't stay in a world without love
4: That coincidence didn't just score him a hit song, It was Asher's entree into Beatles' land. After Peter and Gordon fizzled, he joined forces with the Beatles to launch Apple Records.
5: Paul and I had conversations about Apple long before it started. I would spend evenings over at his house at Cavendish Avenue. By this time we'd moved out, both of us, a family home. And, uh, you know, talking about what Apple was supposed to be and all that stuff. And then when it became real, he asked me to be head of AR.
4: As a music exec at Apple, Asher discovered and signed folk icon James Taylor.
5: I've seen
6: fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days He moved
4: on from his role at Apple to become a full-time producer, working with legends like Diana Ross, Cher, and Neil Diamond, and producing multi-platinum albums with Diamond and Linda Ronstadt. Hey! More recently, Asher put all of these stories into his book, The Beatles A to Z, an alphabetical musical tour. And he hosts a weekly show about the band called From Me to You on Sirius XM.
5: Indeed, when they called me and said, would you be interested? My first call was to Apple and and to Ringo to make sure that it was, you know, Beatle approved. As associated
4: as Peter Asher now is with rock and roll, his early musical formation was something else entirely.
5: I grew up in a very classical background. My mother was a classical musician. She played the oboe. She played in various major orchestras and ended up being oboe professor at the Royal Academy of Music in London. So that's what I grew up with. There was a lot of classical music And your dad? My father was an eminent physician, but also an amateur pianist, big Gilbert and Sullivan fan. So I grew up with all of that. How many kids in your family? Three, two sisters. Your sister Jane? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> that's just. Now, yeah. when you, you grew, you grew up where? In London, in the middle of London. You yes. grew up in the middle of London. Yeah, and, in, in Wimpole Street. Right. You know that medical area that's Wimpole Street, Harley Street. Right. right. Where the, where you? We began in a flat, not not there, but but as you advance in the medical profession, eventually you're entitled to move to. And what kind of music did you listen to as a child, or even as a teenager? As a teenager. Um, uh, I discovered jazz. I was a big bebop fan, and eventually I discovered rock and roll. Elvis, Elvis. Um, but first of all, we we had our rock and rollers, who Cliff Richard, right? Tommy Steele. The first record I ever bought was a Tommy Steele record called Rock with the Caveman, and and the song was written by Lionel Bart, who went on to uh-huh. write Oliver and Oliver. all of the musicals. So, yeah. And of course, we all bought Rock Around the Clock, and we later discovered Elvis.
4: Uh, now when you decide you're going to perform yes. uh, well you, you, you played an instrument
5: you taught yourself to play, play gu- yes you yes, played the guitar got a guitar we all had skiffle groups learned a few chords and so on yes how did you get representation and get a recording deal i started off with a skiffle group with a couple of friends called but, uh the a1 skiffle group not very <laughs> original um deeply unoriginal and then uh at school i met gordon waller and who also played the guitar and sang. And we started singing together and decided to become a what duo. What school were you in? Westminster School. For very, what? It's a very posh English public school. What did you want to study? What did you, oh, you think you wanted to be? Well, uh, I wasn't sure then. An engineer? So, Was there no, something like stable? No. no, no. Oddly enough, the day we were doing this interview, it would have been a significant profession. Because I wanted to be an MP. See, if, if I'd taken that career path, I would by now have been Prime you'd be Minister. would having tea with No, I'd be, uh, I'd be Prime Minister. You'd be Prime Minister. Prim- and the whole mess would have, <laughs> would have been avoided. I would have solved everything. If only. But, if only. But sadly, no, that was my other ambition was to be an MP. And of course, every MP's ambition is to be Prime Minister. Indeed. But anyway, uh, we met at Westminster. We started singing together. Um, we got, you know, we started singing at school events. And parties and and so on. And you start to find yourself getting invited to a lot of parties by people you don't know. And they say, oh, by the way, bring your guitars. And it dawns on you, eventually, you just got booked for a free gig, you know, mm-hmm. which is what happens. And, of course, you do it because the more you play, the better you get. Finally, we started getting pubs and clubs and coffee bars that we could do a couple of sets in, just acoustically, just the two of us. We ended up in a place called the Pickwick Club, which was a more upmarket, late-night eating and drinking club. A lot of actors, a lot of musicians. First time I ever met, Michael Caine was in there. Um, Joan Collins I became friends with back then and still am. So it was that kind of a slightly glamorous place. And we would do two or three sets a night, sitting on bar stools, singing folk songs, Everly Brothers songs, everything we could think of. And one night, uh, a man in a very shiny suit came up to us after the show and asked if he could buy us a drink. We said yes. And he explained that he was Norman Newell, an A&R guy from EMI Records. And he wanted us to come an audition for EMI. So we went up to the EMI Studios, which is what became Abbey Road. They just changed the name. Uh, about a week later, uh, recorded a bunch of songs and they phoned us up and, and told us we, we, they'd like to sign us. So, and they said, you know, that we'd, um, they picked, Norman had picked some songs out of the ones we'd been doing the night he'd seen us that he wanted us to record at the time. I think he was imagining us being kind of folky. Kind of Britain's answer to the folk boom in America, as it were. The kind of, Dylan. The, well, yeah, but a little a little slicker than that. Probably mm. the, the Kingston duo, as it were. Big you know up. what I mean? Or Peter and Paul without Mary. But well, we were my. we were going to be a folk duo, and uh, and uh, we'd love to have been Dylan, but that's you know uh, that's an overweening ambition. So so um, uh, that was that, and and then he said, "Look, if you know any any other songs that you might like to bring to the table, other than the ones that I've already heard you do." feel free to bring them to this first session and that's where the song that we were going to talk about comes in World Without Love
4: now in my understanding through different interviews with different people um that the United States was the goal, it seemed, for everybody. Like, that was the market. Like, they, they, you know, the, the Londoners and Brits are very proud of being Brits, but boy, they wanted to go sell records over there. Was that true for you as well?
5: Well, not just selling records. It was an overall huge ambition to go to America, and, and to, we idolized America. I mean, musically, of course we did. When you think about it, the Beatles, uh, until they started writing their own songs, which they turned out to do rather well, but until that time, they never sang a British song. Everything was based, it was a tribute to American music. You know, and the same with us. We were doing Everly Brothers, American folk songs. We didn't do any English songs at all. And, and that was also tied in with our huge admiration for, for America as a whole. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd grown up... After the war. In the 50s. Yeah, exactly. It was post-war gloom and doom, black and white You know, everywhere, bomb sites all over the place. We had rationing until 1956. And we could look across the Atlantic, and it looked to us like everything in America was shiny and new and colorful, and they all had perfect teeth and big, amazing cars. And, you know, it was like, whoa, that's the place. And this incredible music. So one thing I remember distinctly is that when... Um, World Without Love went to number one and we got the phone call. One of the biggest aspects of that call was that now we get to go. Right. It was not only the sheer number oneness of it, it was they cannot stop us now. We're going to America. How- You know, I had copies of Downbeat with the jazz clubs I wanted to go to already circled. I had a poster of New York on my wall. You know, so it was, it was I knew I was going. I just didn't know how and when. Now, uh, before we get to the song itself, how did you meet McCartney? Well,
4: you're you're the beneficiary of McCartney handing you a reject from the Lennon McCartney catalogue. Correct. That that Lennon didn't want to record. You'll tell us that story. But where did you meet him? I met him because
5: he had met my sister and asked her out. Um, Where did he meet your sister? um, They met because Jane at that time was, and and still is, a very successful actress in in London and well-known. We we both actually started as child actors. Um, When I was eight... And she was six. We both got our first uh, movie parts. You, you did your first okay. film, The Planter's okay. Wife,
4: playing the son of Claudette Colbert.
5: Yes. They shot that in the UK? Yes. Okay. It was a period when she'd moved to the UK and was working there. My father was played by Jack Hawkins. Of course. You might remember. Was I played. love him. S- beautiful actor. Stern oh. military man. Oh, Bridge great. on the River choir, All those movies. Yes. He was my father. And Claudette Colbert, much more exciting, played my mother. And I got to kiss, caught with great enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was Pinewood. They, shoot? they shot at Pinewood. Pinewood, yes. They did several films. Yeah, quite a
4: few. It, was there ever a uh, a, a kind of a, a, a conflict for you or anything where you thought, do I want to be an actor, do I want to be a musician? Why did you
5: then do one? Well, it's interesting, yes. I mean, I think what happened is that the acting... My acting, the offers diminished and my ability to do them diminished and I started to take school seriously. As I mentioned, I was at Westminster, which was a school that did not give you time off to go and be in a film. Jane, on the other hand, I was super enthusiastic about it and extremely good at it and became immediately successful, quit school at 15, my tolerant parents yet again going okay, and and became a full-time actor, which she still is and, and does very well. And and it was in that context as a celebrity actor, movie star, beautiful person, that she was invited to go and see the Beatles when they first came down to London by a magazine who wanted her to write a piece about, you know, what was all the fuss about. What did she write? Um, was I, she favorable? She was extremely favorable. Um <laughs> I don't know if we've got a copy of the actual piece, but I remember her talking about it and saying how great they were. And of course, as the visiting celeb, she was taken backstage to meet them all afterwards. Right. She liked. She them was very well much. known at that point. She was yes. famous. Yeah. Yes, she was famous, and she was a bit more well known than they were. They were about to become immensely more well known yeah. than anyone in the universe. Right. But at the time, Jane was was she was on television quite a lot and that stuff. So. She met them and, and liked them. They liked her. One of them liked her in particular and asked her out. So that's how it began. And I think how long I, were they together? Uh, several years. A I, while. I well, because he ended up moving into our house. You know, I don't know right. if know that part of the story. Yeah, he, uh, lived, he lived in your house. Yeah, for about two years. You shared a room with him. No, shared no? a floor. You two, shared a floor two, with Two n- next door rooms. <laughs> We had two separate bedrooms, and then, yes, we shared a bathroom. Yeah.
4: Yes. Although it would have been thrilling if you were in the same bedroom <laughs> deal, laying there at night, smoking, steaming, training lyrics. Although I, maybe you should do I this.
5: Wish. Yeah, maybe I could have got a writing. Maybe you should play
4: this. Before. He could have given you a lot of pointers. A couple of words in one song. It could have been Lennon I'd, McCartney I'd, and Asher. I'd be rich. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then, and then, so then he
5: gives you the song.
4: Mm. Uh, Describe yes, what happened.
5: I'd heard the song. You guys were recording. No, you weren't. You hadn't made it no. yet. No. Here's what happened. Cut back to where I was telling you the story about Norman Newell spots us in a club, signs us, chooses some songs from our existing repertoire. And what year says, is that? Sixty-three. Right. And says, "Do you know if there are any other good songs you want to do? Let me know." And the reason I kind of went, "Maybe there is," is because a few months earlier I had heard this song "World Without Love." Paul was just singing it in his room, and I'd said that's really good. And and he'd explained to me that it was unfinished because it because john didn't like it they weren't going to record it but what i also heard is that he would actually kind of laugh at the opening line he thought please lock me away was a ridiculous opening (laughs) to a song so apparently when paul would try to sell john on the song he would get no further than that line and and john would stop him and go okay i will lock you away the song's over that's amazing then nothing happened until we got our record deal and i went back to paul and said look this amazing thing has happened. We are going to make a record. We've got a studio date booked in a month or whatever it was. And he's booked some musicians. We picked a few songs. But I wondered, could we possibly have a go at that World Without Love song that, that we, I liked so much? And he said yes. And he wrote out the chords and the words for me. On a piece of paper, which is safely locked in a fireproof yes. safe back You're in, very in Malibu, yeah. And that's when I did, as the session date grew near, I did have to prevail upon him to finish it. So finally, I said, you know, we really need a bridge. This is too short, you know, even by pop standards. Uh, it's about a minute, and uh, so <laughs> and uh, so. So he, he finally took his guitar, guitar and went into his bedroom for, you know, of course, an infuriatingly short, like eight minutes or so, and yeah. and came out. Shakespeare. You know, yeah. Exactly. Came out with the, So I wait, and in a while I will see my true love smile, which is the beautiful bridge of the right, song. Right. And we were done. And so we, we recorded it a week later, uh, along with about four or five other songs. This was not an album deal. This was a deal to see if we could make a single. And... And by the end of the session, all that folky plan was out the window, uh, because well, without love sounded like a hit. So that was no, there was no question in anyone's mind that was going to be our first single, and it was, and it went to number one first in England, and then all over Europe, and finally America. Now, how long do you ride the Peter
4: and Gordon thing before you transition into becoming a full-time? You know you, that, that ends. You stop doing that
5: when we um, we never broke up as such. It's interesting. We never had a big Everly Brothers level row or anything like that. We gradually drifted. Uh, I guess in about sixty eight into doing other things I knew I wanted to produce records why I, Why? The first time I was ever in the recording studio I went this is so cool and when I saw what a producer does that you could try out ideas imagine arrangements and sounds the fact you could hire musicians much better than yourself and tell them what to do, do, do I do thought the, that did, was do, brilliant do, do you know
4: something I share that passion with you I went to a recording studio a couple times in my life not often I went to watch people record and it was one of the most thrilling experiences yeah. of my yeah. life yeah. but all of a sudden now you're in the
5: world where you're helping other people get where they want to go. You're of service to them. Yes. You're
4: you're working for
5: them. What was that like for you? Well, there there were two completely different aspects of it. The production thing, as I say, was a deliberate and conscious ambition. I said, I want to do this. And of course, the thing was that in order to Prove whether or not you could produce a record, you had to find somebody who wanted you to produce them and mus- a and, and budget. You know, now it's a lot different. Now, if you want to be a record producer, you can sit at your laptop and come up with a groove and a beat and some music and, and a, you know, go, look, this is what I can do. And everyone will go, great, you can do this record for us. But that, of course, didn't exist. Without a studio with real people in it, there was no way to How'd prove. you get in there? Yeah, um, I persuaded a friend of mine um, called Paul Jones... I don't know if you remember him, he was the lead singer of Manfred Mann. Yes. Great voice, you know, yeah. that There she was just a yeah, that guy. She, she, Brilliant singer. She, she, and one of the best harmonica players in the world, by wow. the way. And he did me the huge favor. He was going to make a, a solo album of he'd watched me in the studio on a couple of Peter and Gordon records and and said, you know, do you want to produce some tracks with me? And I said, Yes. Yeah. So the first record I ever produced was a one song, a BG song called And the Sun Will Shine sung by paul jones and what i did it's only notable now in many respects because i i wanted to take no chances on getting a great rhythm section um so i asked some friends to play on it so that that record has nikki hopkins on piano i don't know if you know of it. course nikki hopkins on piano paul samuel smith on bass who was the bass player in the yardbirds uh-huh. and went on by the way to produce carly simon's records uh-huh. and cat stevens records um, Jeff Beck on guitar oh my God. and Paul McCartney on drums. Oh my God. So, so, <laughs> that legendary he's a, drummer. He's a, he's a great drummer. And uh, so that was the rhythm section. The song was only a minor hit, but I got into the production business. And then, so that was the first example of, of advising other people. The second one was James Taylor, where I became his manager only because I believed so strongly in him and we didn't know who else we trusted to do it. I, I found James discovered him in showbiz vernacular Um, where the King Bees featuring Danny Korchma on lead guitar accompanied Peter and Gordon on a couple of tours we were assigned a backup band usually they were very good Danny and I became firm friends I loved his playing he's a big Steve Cropper fan as I am and so on and and, uh, so uh, uh, he and I became friends remained friends after the Peter and Gordon era was over Danny was then in a band called The Flying Machine with his childhood friend, James Taylor. Mm-hmm. They'd known each other since they were 10 or 11 years old and, and remained great friends. Over here. To this day, over here. Then I think in North Carolina and Martha's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. And so Danny was in this Flying Machine band. Flying Machine was a New York band. Suffering all the vicissitudes New York can possibly offer, um, they were broke. Their their record company made half a record and disappeared. And uh, they were, several of them were strung out on drugs, including James, and it was all miserable. So band broke up. James decided to go to London, mostly because I think he had a girlfriend over there. He thought he could stay with. And Danny said, "Oh, if you're going to London, I have an old friend who lives in London, who I used to play with. He's okay. Here's his number." So he gave me gave James my name and number. So James, having come over to London, called me up out of the blue without any idea of what I was up to at that time and introduced himself as Danny's friend. I invited him over to dinner. He played me a little demo tape he'd made a few days before and I was completely stunned and blown away and amazed. What year is that? That would have been late 67, I think, or early 68. And, And, you know, everything about him I couldn't believe I was hearing this for him for the first time. His guitar playing had the precision of a classical musician, but the the chords of a jazz musician, you know, and this finger picking, beautiful style. His singing, you know, he had his voice was this sort of rich folky kind of American voice, but the phrasing was all Sam Cooke and Ray Charles. You know, it was was a brilliant mixture. And of course, these incredible songs. This tape he played me had something in the way she moves and something's wrong and knocking around the zoo on that tape. Picked up my guitar, played me a couple more songs. And we had this odd conversation where I said, look, it so happens I've just got this job as head of A&R for a new record label. You know, I can sign people. Would you like a record deal? And he kind of went, Yes, I'd love one. And that, <laughs> that was it. And, of course, I had to explain to him whose label it was and and so on. So within days of this... How often did they interact? Uh, well, within days... JT day, with the band. Gotcha. Within days of this conversation, I brought him into the office to meet everybody. He sat down. He played a couple of songs for George and Paul, as I recall. And they shared my enthusiasm. We signed him up and... Was he
4: intimidated
5: to play for them? Yes. Yes. Uh, I can't imagine. Well, two interesting things, actually. In... In the in the lyrics to Fire and Rain, um, there are a couple of things that are often misinterpreted. Um, one uh, is is um, uh, flying machines in pieces on the ground. Yeah. People think it's about a plane crash. Right. That's the band right uh, breaking up. And the other is Holy Host of others standing round me. That's the Beatles. Wow, that's so cool. So they were the Holy Host, and yes, he was intimidated. And I didn't really think th- think that through in terms of how. Because, I mean, I'm sure the, the, the world was full of Americans jumping on a plane going, I'm going to go to London and meet the Beatles, you know. And there was James doing exactly that and, and meeting them within days of arrival.
4: Another man like Peter Asher with a front seat to music history is New York's biggest concert promoter of the past 50 years, Ron Delsoner.
5: So you have to be a diplomat. Horse and most people aren't this one. They don't know how to. But after you learn this, as you do in your craft, how to make everybody happy. Sit down at a table, not it's this way or we're going to bomb you. You're going to see fire and fury. We're going to burn your house and your kids and the dog. I don't do that.
4: For my full interview with Ron Delsner, text Ron to 70101. Peter Asher on Living with Paul McCartney coming up next.
0: going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here, along with you fans, covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players
4: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Peter Asher was at the center of everything that was happening in British music in the 60s.
5: I remember going to see The Stones with Paul quite early on, and they were playing the Scene Club in London, and it was on the way there. He was pretty disgruntled about the fact, he said, the only thing he said they really hate is that their manager lets them wear whatever they like, and Brian makes us wear these stupid suits. Is that what he yes, said? yes. Now, um, this
4: is in the New York Times. I want to, I want to launch this section of our conversation just by reading this thing, which I read to McCartney one time. He, I don't think he'd ever read this. Of course, he can't be, he can't track every single reference to the Beatles as cultural material. But this is from the New York Times when the Beatles make their iTunes deal in 2010. This is in November of 2010. And, uh, in the New York Times, uh, uh Ben Cesario and Miguel Halft are the writers and <clears throat> they write, What is perhaps one of my favorite paragraphs They write, One of the last major holdouts against selling its music via digital downloads, the Beatles are the ultimate prize for any music company. The group has held on to blockbuster sales four decades after breaking up. It has sold more than 177 million albums in the United States alone, according to the Record Industry Association of America. And here's the line that I've read to McCartney, and held on to untouchable cultural prestige. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why? What is it? I mean, I can get. I, mean, I, I, I want to do your show one day because I did the Beatles show here. and It wasn't uh-huh. your show. I did one of the other Beatles shows for for Sirius. Oh right. Do you still right. do your Sirius show? Oh absolutely. Yes. I'd love. Do you have guests come on? Not yet. But oh, you I, don't. I will. I will. Oh my god. But I will. Well, if you, if you've got a cover, then don't worry. No, but no, no, my, no, no. I, I came on and played I, all my stuff. But what I want to. See, I want, want say, to. But yeah. we can do this mm. now in in a sense, which yes. is that. What is it about them that made them?
5: on their own planet. I think you referred to some of it before. It was the the coming together of this perfect storm, you know, where every element was perfect. You cannot imagine... Any better combination could of Couldn't have a people. better manager. Couldn't have a better producer. Exactly. Couldn't have exactly. better studio musicians. Exactly. And the the, the 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 distinction between, it's as if, you know, when the Spice Girls created the Spice Girls, trying to give, trying to get, deliberately give each one, okay, you're sporty, you're posh, right. you're whatever it was, and whatever right. it was, right. you know, and it, it was artificial, and it was incomplete. That happened Naturally. by the will of God or right. whatever. Right. Um, with the Beatles. There was, it was just something we could, there was one, there was a Beatle for everyone to love. There was music for everybody to love because the songs varied between full, out, full on rock and roll and then suddenly a beautiful show tune or right. an amazing ballad or Bloody Yesterday, you know. Right. it was the, and, and the other thing is they were just better than everybody else better writers you know not better players necessarily as individual virtuosos but better players as a combination you know the people would say well ringo's not a great drummer or george someone else can play faster guitarlicks than george and it would that was wrong because what they were playing that's what, an unfair and, statement to
4: say that ringo wasn't a great drummer
5: i love ringo's drumming right. i i I'm I'm right. continually say that ringo is still underrated to this day because ringo was a was brilliant i mean he, he was a restrained drummer. There was a period right. where being a great drummer... He wasn't meant, Keith Moon. And, or even or Buddy... John Bonham. Or Buddy Rich. Right. You know, I mean, that was the time when you... Oh, a brilliant drummer is someone who can just Flash. go crazy and yeah. be flashy. And that's why it's so great that there's no Ringo drum solos, really. I mean, as such, full-on solos. And, you know, and he, he would work out a... a almost a written part for each song where it exactly fit not just what everyone else was playing but the lyric and and everything no i think ringo was utterly brilliant and 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 you know and and george too you know the fact that there's other people who can play flashier and faster is not the point he would pick the right guitar lick the right guitar tone to fit the song and you know it was all perfect how did you know epstein where'd you meet him I didn't know him terribly well. I liked him very much. I met him, you know, as I got to hang out with the Beatles. Obviously, he was around from time to time. And uh, I remember playing poker with him on on a train across Germany. Um, We were, was the only time we toured with the Beatles. They were in this fancy train and we were all sitting there playing poker with a couple of Beatles and Brian. And, and he won, by the way. And, (laughs) and... uh, the Beatles loved them dearly. I mean, and the, what is clear from conversations with Brian and from learning about Brian is that you know he he would have thrown thrown himself in front of a train to save them. This yes. was his life. He, his love and admiration for the Beatles was total. Describe for me uh, now something I did not know because I, I mean I
4: I would never pretend to know everything, but something I did not know that EMI became Abbey Road Studios. I know it's
5: weird, isn't it? Because, but how, how did that happen? Um, they just, just bought it from them. No, no. No, they just changed the name. Nothing right. happened. Nothing happened. Um, you know, it's, EMI, it's always been EMI Studios. Right. And, the Beatles don't own it. No. Right. I, it would be interesting to look up what year it happened. But at some point, and I think it was connected with, at one point there was a suge- suggestion it might be for sale. Uh, and there was talk about maybe it should be saved, you know, the, as a British right. heritage yeah, site so and all that of kind of stuff. Andrew Lloyd Webber got involved and was talking about buying it. I remember all that. And somewhere before that happened, somebody had the obviously brilliant idea of changing the name of the studio from EMI Studios to Abbey Road Studios. And they changed the logo of the, of the studio to, to be the Zebra Crossing. You know, people think that, the, that uh, you know, the, the album was named after the studio. Which he wasn't. Right. The album was named after the street they happened to be right, on. You right, right, right.
4: It was like... Well, people t- have a tendency, myself included, to to glorify the Beatles and to mythologize everything about the Beatles in an inappropriate way. It, well, exactly. I'm that. the first person to say that I thought the Beatles owned Abbey Road Studios. Right, no. I thought they no. bought
5: it from you. Know, it was theirs. It's their kingdom. It was all their whole thing. Not at all. Not in any way. And, and it's, it's just that, you know, they, they were sitting around arguing about album titles. Kind of went... Well, since we haven't anything better, we're you know this studio's in Abbey Road. Let's just call it the album Abbey Road, and let's just go into a photo outside in Abbey Road right now, which is what they did. So, which is why, the, like the whole crazy Paul is dead thing and all that, is so ridiculous. Can they I can, tell? You, can I tell you how many Paul is dead conspiracy videos I've watched? Please do. Oh
4: no, no, and and the range of them. Yeah, I know. No, if you no 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 no. I mean, when I can't sleep, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm a. I'm a, I'm a I'm a hall of fame insomniac. Right. And I lay in bed, my wife is dead asleep, my kids are asleep, and I'm on my computer till midnight or two in the morning, tumbling down the corridors of YouTube, where they're doing the vocal comparisons, and measuring the length of his earlobes and the symmetry of his eye sockets, and all this BS. And I'll
5: tell you how how silly it is. They literally kind of went, let's go and shoot a picture outside, in the road, you know? So the idea, when people start ascribing significance to the license plate of the VW that's parked by the zebra crossing... if there was any instinct or time or ability right. to, to decide what that lesson was. Well, there's like, a lot, there's a lot more than that, though. Too, though, no, and I, know that
4: I, one, but... Berry I know, i very mean, I I mean, it's all there. I in, understand. In documentary, so. I read a
5: great one the other day, um, which, which you could probably find. My father, um, was a, a brilliant doctor and worked in a lot of different fields. He's the guy who identified Munchausen syndrome, and oh, interesting. Uh-huh. Doctor, um, he also used your hypno- father, my father. Oh, fantastic! Because yeah. you know most conventional doctors name a disease they identify after themselves. Right. My father was more eccentric and named it after Baron Munchausen because storytelling is the major symptom aspect of the as illness. Is, yeah, um, interesting. But he also used hypnosis in his practice, which was quite unusual at the time. And he wrote a very a, a groundbreaking article about um, the, the, the proper clinical use of hypnosis. But anyway, I read a thing that. My father was in on it and he used hypnosis as part of the plot of when Paul, when when they replaced Paul with Billy Shears. Yeah, your dad was whatever. responsible. Yeah. My dad was... He'll he do the switch. It also said in that article that I knew the whole story, that I was the only person who knew it all and wasn't talking. So I wish to be treated with the appropriate respect. But, the, I, the, the, I'm, but I'm, for now, I'm still pretending that it's all complete My nonsense. favorite,
4: My favorite clip was of of this ocean of clips I've watched yeah. in the past, not now, but you know, a while back. Uh, my Favorite was the one guy said he he shed he did split screen comparisons between McCartney before the accident and McCartney after the accident and it was compelling where you see McCartney before the accident never looks at the fret and never looks at the fingering on the guitar right he looks straight ahead. He sings every song in the pre-sixty-six era, looking straight at. It, never looks at his hands. Yeah. And the post-sixty-six McCartney looks at his hands regularly. And looks at the fingering. Well, I'm assuming maybe because the, the fingering was more difficult than it was. Maybe to it was a different bass. I
5: have no idea. But, but who knows? But, no, but, no, but, but saying, when you watch this
4: stuff, it is really you know it's bullshit. But of course McCartney's on Letterman, and, and he says you know and they you know, they, they say I'm dead, uh, and then Letterman goes. But you're not. You know, it's like McCarty just smiles and right. kind of sloughs it off. But yeah, w- w- no, I mean it's
5: it's 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 insane. Imagine somebody you knew suddenly this, you're being told that the person you still know now is not the same one when it just is. Did you think as
4: I do? Like, how much can four guys be in each other's lives twenty four seven? Even if you cut it back, there was a period where they were always together. Yes, you yes. Know, Jagger yeah. makes that comment at the, uh, the yes. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, and and they're and they're constantly together. And that eases up. They all get married. They start to have families. They have houses. Yeah. they come together a little bit more slowly a little bit more reluctantly but eventually like you know every band is going to break
5: up and go and go solo and do, every, or, or constitute other or, bands or find a way to make it work I mean Mick and Keith miraculously they've always found a way to make it work and even, and even you know, in spite of the things in spite to, of everything that the, yeah.
4: have been said in books by one oh, yeah. or the other they and insult each, each other they have terrible fights yeah, they come back together why do you think they do do you know them uh, yes but I'm just saying, I do and again to but, the extent you want to say why do they what did they have that they've kept this coming do they really believe that the to the s- the sum is greater than the parts i think
5: so i think they believe deep down i believe i think that they both believe they need each other right. and they wish they didn't and they never had as much success never together where no, I mean, the, the
4: beatles thought that the parts were the equal of the sum
5: right they I mean, go off on their own and was just as great a time Make would leave and make a solo record and go now i've got a really great bass player and a really whatever right. you know and because <laughs> even the salt bill Wyman, and, and because he'd have some incredibly great American bass player, yeah, yeah. and and then he'd make a record that no one liked. Yeah, know? And 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 deep down, he's of course extremely smart. So I think I think they're both clever enough to know that they need each other, and that the best work they've ever done was when they worked together, and will be.
4: In your career over the last several years, I mean, you've produced J D. Souther, Andrew Gold, Bonnie Raitt, Cher, Ten Thousand Maniacs. In 1977, you won uh, uh, the first of three Grammys. You won uh, For Simple Dreams with J.T. in 77. Uh, cry Like a Rainstorm How Like a Wind with Linda Ronstadt, best comedy album with Robin Williams how yes. did that come together?
5: Um, Robin and I uh, were, were, were great friends um, I met him originally through my wife actually who knew him before before I did and we all became very firm friends and he was going out on the road and wanted to make an album of it um, and asked me if I would like to help and I was thrilled to do so essentially we just filmed I mean recorded every show and, and I made notes of which bits he did best which night and, and stuff like that we And would go over stuff with with him and m- even make suggestions of uh, additions or whatever and uh, and and then put the whole record together so so that it's very different than producing a, a music album except in the one thing they have in common is you're trying to pick the, the best take of every particular segment and that's what we did so then in 2015 you get the CBE Yes. What was that like? Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, it's exciting. <laughs> it's very English. It doesn't really mean anything, you know. But, but uh, the, the best part is the, is the phone call you get, you know, when they, they tell you. Because it's all super secretive. I, I got a call and this is, you know, this, this is so-and-so, the assistant to the Majesty's Consul General yes. in Los Angeles and, and all this. And I, I thought they were going to ask me something because I have helped them out before. With Could them, you so. help
4: us get tickets to a show?
5: No, it would be no. like a benefit. i something. Kidding, I know, but it would almost... Right. It would be like we're trying to get put yeah. a sort of benefit together. Do you get Ringo well. to come play? Exactly, exactly. So I kind of went, yes, you know. And he said, you know, are you alone? And I went, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, because um, I have something important to tell you. Her Majesty has uh, has uh, decided to offer you to the commander of the British Empire. To be a commander of the British Empire, and we wanted to inquire as to whether you would be inclined to accept. And of course, I said yes <laughs> immediately. As you know, some people do turn it down. Bowie turned down a knighthood, apparently. Um, some people think, you know, there's, there's those people who think that the British Empire is, is an evil enterprise. Well, yeah. and have, which A course, colonial. It was. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, but um, yeah, and I got Prince William. You never know who you're going to get. Because they come from the Queen overall. Uh, the, she is, as they so charmingly describe it, the fountain of all honor. <laughs> but, but it can be given to you by any member of the royal family. There's another
4: title for your book, The Fountain, the Fountain of, of All Honor. Exactly I'm right. going to write that down. You know, to find people, and there, and there are many of them, they're not that hard to find, but ones like you who have the the background, sort of, to talk about this endless, endless love I have for the music of this one group.
5: Thank you, thank you, thank you. What a great pleasure to so get This you. was really fun. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Much enjoyed it.
4: If you want more stories from Peter Asher, you can listen to his show From Me to You on Sirius Channel 18 every Thursday night at 9. His book is called The Beatles A to Z, An Alphabetical Musical Tour. This is Here's the Thing. I'm Alec Baldwin.
1: Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great great grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast,